This morning we're back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 9, looking again at the seven signs that point to Jesus as Messiah. This is the sixth sign, and I'm reading a lengthy text this morning, but it's God's Word, so listen carefully as I begin reading in John chapter 9 and verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word meant sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, 
I was blind, but now I see. They asked him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answers, I I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Again, this is the sixth sign that John uses to point us to Jesus Christ so that we might believe that he is the Christ and that in believing we might have life through his name. Remember in the first sign where Jesus changed the water into wine and he showed that He is the one who brings the abundant joy of the new covenant kingdom of God. In the second sign, when he cleansed the temple, we saw that he is the one who restores true worship. He builds the temple through his death and his resurrection. In the healing of the official son, we saw that Jesus gives life simply by the power of his word. In the healing of the invalid, we saw that Jesus removes the brokenness of sin and he restores wholeness. And last week in the feeding of the 5,000, we saw that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the only one who can satisfy the deep hunger of our soul. Today we look at the healing of the blind man and see that Jesus is the one who brings sinners out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is one of those instances of of, of, a miraculous work where someone actually believes. We've seen in many of the others that people see the miracle, that they see the demonstration of who Christ is, but they go away not believing. But this man comes to faith. He worships 
Physical blindness is used here as Jesus used other physical things as a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the darkness that people are in. As you read scripture, you realize that that darkness is a metaphor of being apart from God. God is light, and darkness is what is opposite to God. As sinners, we are born in darkness. We live in darkness. And without Christ, we are destined for eternity in darkness. But when Jesus shines his saving light in us, He shines the light of the glorious gospel. He opens our blind eyes. We begin to see the eternal realities that transcend this world. He brings us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I've told you this story before, but I must tell it again because it fits so well. I want to tell you again about my friend Sal a very successful, well-respected man living in Brooklyn, New York, uh, Italian Catholic, very religious. You know, in many people's minds, he lived on top of the world. And friends of ours asked us to visit them. They were visit this family. They were praying for them that they would come to understand the gospel of God's grace, not just Christianity as a religion. And so when he invited me into his home that Saturday morning, I expected to meet this strong, powerful, confident man. And I met a man who was transparent and humbled and broken. And he said, Pastor, let me tell you how I look at my life. He says, for years, it seems like I've been sitting in this dark room. It's pitch black. I'm sitting there. I'm locked there. I'm imprisoned. I'm looking for a way out, but I cannot find a way out of this room. This is my life. I'm living in darkness. And then he said, every once in a while, a flash of light goes through the room, and I see a door. And I get up from my chair, and as I move to the door, it becomes dark again. I can't find the door. I'm locked in this darkness. And I had the joy that morning of telling him that Jesus is the light of the world. And that when you come to him, he will ensure that you will never walk in darkness again. He will take you out of that room, that kingdom of darkness, and transfer you into the kingdom of light. If you will just repent and acknowledge that he alone is your savior. And that morning, he asked Jesus Christ to save him. And later his wife did, and his kids did, and they were baptized. But that's a wonderful, tragic description of people apart from Christ. Even if they don't feel the way that Sal did, even if they don't describe their lives that way, 
They all know if they do not have Christ that something is missing. There's something in this world that they don't see, that they can't see. They just don't know what it is. They can't figure it out until somebody comes along and preaches the gospel that shines the light into their heart. As I look at this text this morning, as Jesus opens the eyes of this blind man, but even more importantly, as he comes to faith in Christ and really comes out of darkness, because even if his eyes were restored and he saw light in this world, if he had gone on to live without Christ, ultimately he would have died and he would have lived in eternal darkness forever. So when I look at this text and what John is pointing us to about Christ, the, the first thing I see is that Jesus knows, he understands the sovereign purposes of God in our suffering. Rabbi, teacher, they say to Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was blind? And they were sort of accepting the, the, the first century theories of, you know, why people have all of these maladies in their life. Either they did something wrong or their parents did something wrong. And of course, this, this uh, man was born blind. So even the rabbis taught that it's very possible that in a prenatal life, that that prenatal child could have done something that would affect how they were born and, and, and how, how they lived. And so they're asking what any first century Jew would ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now that, that is an unusual way of looking at your suffering. To believe that God somehow uses the pain, the discomfort, the unhappiness, the disappointment in your life, that somehow God is using this for some greater purpose in life. We don't want to believe that, and that's why we, we look for a reason. You know, why did this happen? What, what rational explanation can I come to to explain this, as the disciples did? What empirical uh, explanation, what, you know, what investigation, what science can explain to me why my life is in darkness, why I'm living in, in misery. And if you're not, you know, of the era that I was raised in, where you were raised with, you know, solving everything by the rational mind and solving, solving everything by the scientific method, you know, maybe you're a uh, you're, you're that, you're that postmodern world where, you know, you don't believe you can know anything, so you just live with skepticism. And let me say, there's a healthy skepticism, and there's a proper rationalism, and there's a proper empiricism. I mean, we do need to figure some things out, and we, we, we can test things scientifically and come to some conclusions, but there's some things that you cannot answer 
with a rational mind or a scientific method. There are some things that are beyond the physical world. They transcend, as we say, the physical world. And of course, that's God. And as Paul will say later, you know, you can't see with the eye or understand with the mind the things of God. We, we see them by faith. There is no rational answer to everything that is happening in my life. And if you don't, if you don't have that belief, if you don't have the belief that there is a God who explains everything, who is the answer for everything, and even though I don't know the answer all the times, I believe the answer is with him, so I trust him. If you don't know that, then you end up living in despair and disappointment. I like what uh, author, theologian Craig Beale says. He says, apart from God's explanation of himself and his universe, all interpretations are reduced to mere observations of the way things are with no ultimate, ultimate explanation of why they are and where they came from. You can only make an, an observation, yeah, this is happening in this way. But you, you can't answer the question, why? There's no rationale, no empirical study that can lead you to answer the question, where did I come from? Who am I as a human being? What is my purpose in life? Is there a life after this? Where am I heading? We don't know the answers to those things unless God speaks to us. The God who transcends this world enters this world and speaks to us. We rest our faith in a sovereign God who is good and who has revealed everything we need to know in this world in order to live a life that's pleasing to him. He hasn't revealed everything we want to know. As Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things which he has revealed belong to us and to our children. Everything I need to live a life that is pleasing to God is available for me to know. And what I don't know, when I cannot give a detailed explanation for the stuff that is happening in life, my answer is God is at work. God is at work even in the blindness of this man from his very birth. God is at work in our suffering. As William Barclay said, affliction, sorrow, pain, disappointment, loss are always opportunities for God to display his grace. See, we want to say, God, why has this happened to me? And God wants us to say, God, what do you want to do in my life through this? How do you want to display your grace? I remember 
my friend, uh, Dr. Bob Provost, the former president of Slavic Gospel Association, who worked in the former Soviet Union and Ukraine and the Baltic countries, and, and he argued that, that the severe life under communism, under 50 years of communism in the former Soviet Union, that that severe life was what God used to plow the spiritual soil that had been hardened by dead orthodoxy, by Islam, and it prepared the way for the gospel. He would say, I thank God, not for what communism is, but for what communism did to the former Soviet Union, because it broke the hold of false religion. Even if it brought them to, to the desperation of atheism, it broke the hold of religion and opened up a door for the gospel that is still wide open today. And his son, who is also my friend, who has now served in the uh, country of Albania for so many years. Albania lived under the stranglehold of communism dictatorship for 45 years. But he would argue the same thing, that, that, that that communist dictatorship broke the stranglehold of Islam in that country, moved out, wiped out religion, so that when communism fell, the gospel could come in and find fertile soil. And there, there are so many wonderful works going on in Albania and the former Soviet Union today, churches being planted, people coming to Christ. Jesus said very clearly, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now that contradicts all rationale, it contradicts empiricism, and it contradicts our skepticism, which says you really can't know. Jesus said, no, you can know this. God is at work in this man's suffering. This is an opportunity for God to display his grace. And again, if you don't believe this, then when that crisis comes in your life, and notice I said when, not if, it will come. Something is coming to everyone's life that brings them to the end of themselves. It happens to everybody, rich and poor, doesn't matter who you are, that crisis is coming. And if you don't believe in a good, sovereign God who ordains suffering to bring about a greater purpose in someone's life, then you will end up in sadness, despair, anger, disappointment, or suicide. Thankfully, there is no sin that I have done or has been done to me no evil that I have done or that I have experienced in life. There are no consequences of sin and evil that are beyond the reach of God's 
powerful, redeeming, and transforming hand. There is nothing happening in your life today. There's nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you're suffering that is beyond God's will, God's power, to display his mighty work in your life if you will but see who Jesus Christ is. And then when you do, you confess with Paul. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, Jesus understands the sovereign purposes of God in suffering. We see, secondly, that he is committed to the primacy and urgency of his, of his messianic calling. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus simply says, you know, if you're living, this is daytime. And it's time to do the work of God. Listen closely to his words. We must do the work of him who sent me. I'm expecting as I read this story that Jesus is going to say, I must do the work of him who sent me. And he does say I, because that's included in we. But he's saying that this is the purpose of all of those who follow Jesus Christ. If you are in the daytime of life, that means you're alive. You woke up this morning. You're breathing God's air. That we must do the work of him who sent Jesus. That's why we're here. While I am living, what is my mission in life? Jesus simply says, to do the work of the one who sent me. But then, of course, I have to ask, well, what is the work of God? Is it the work of Opening blind eyes, well, certainly that is a unique work of God. But what is the primary work of God that God is doing in this world? What is God's purpose in this world today? And it's very simply, as Paul puts it in Acts, he is calling out of the nations a people for his name. He is building a family. He is building his church. And he's doing that out of the nations of the world. He is calling out of the nations a people for his name. Or Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he said, if, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
What is the work of God? God is reconciling sinners, the lost world, to himself, and he's committed to us this work of reconciliation. This was the work of Christ on earth. Of course, we understand that his work was a lot different than ours. His was not just telling the message. He was the message. It wasn't just him telling them that the Son of Man must die for sinners. That's why he came. No, he is the Son of Man who gave his life for sinners. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the one who speaks words of truth. He offers his life as a sacrifice for sins. He rules gently and graciously over his people. He's prophet, priest, and king. That's his role. And our role is we point people to Jesus Christ as the prophet, the priest, and king. And then he says, while I am in the world... I am the light of the world. I want everyone's attention drawn to me. But he knew he was leaving. The night was coming. That night of crucifixion, when his ministry on earth would be done, his physical presence would be gone. And he had prepared his disciples for that because he told them in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. And you, you can't be a, a, a candle uh, hidden in a basket. You need to shine for me. Or as Paul says, you know, we are lights shining in a crooked and perverse world. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, when we preach the gospel, we are preaching that which brings light into the heart of sinners so that they can see the glory of, of God in the face of, of Jesus Christ. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, but the night is coming when no man can work. I caught that in Steve's opening prayer this morning, that we live with a sense that uh, this life will soon be gone, and none of us know. Of course, the older we get, we think we're closer than when we were 50 or 30, but we know that's, that's not even true, because there are 30-year-olds who die, and 50-year-olds who die. But the point of Jesus is daytime is the time to do the work of God. And he was doing it, pointing people to himself as the light of the world. And the night is coming. There's no changing that. It's inevitable. The time will come when you will work for Jesus no more. So in light of that, do what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 90. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we can apply our hearts to wisdom. Teach us not to just to count them, but to weigh them and allot them to, a, to an eternal purpose. Thirdly, we see that Jesus asserts his authority over all other authorities. This is who Jesus is. 
He said to the man, go. He makes a mud pie, puts it on his eyes, and then he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Of course, we know this is one of those Sabbath controversies, you know, where the religious leaders are upset with Jesus because he does not obey them. Your disciples eat with unwashed hands, they would say at one point. You eat with publicans and sinners. You and your disciples, you pluck grain on the Sabbath. You tell a lame man to pick up his bed and walk. You work by spitting and making a mud pie and putting it on a man's eyes, and he works by going, washing it off. It's really a matter of authority. You know, we are the ones who have religious authority. We know what is right and wrong. They would have said, don't heal that man. And Jesus would say, even if it was a violation of Sabbath rules, God would heal that man. God is always working. He is always working to reconcile and restore people to himself. They would have said, you can't make a mud mud patty and heal a man's blindness. And Jesus would say, it's daytime. It's not nighttime. It's daytime. And since it's daytime, I must work the works of the one who sent me. God never rests from reconciling sinners to himself. It's very simple. We have a commission from the king of this universe. Make disciples. Preach the gospel to all of creation. And when they say to Peter and the apostles, we're going to let you go from jail, but do not preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter says we ought to obey God rather than man. And we will. It's daytime. It's time to do the work of God in this world. And it doesn't matter who says don't do it. And even though we do it with relative, we have the freedom to do it with relative ease in this world today, there are people all across the world that are giving their life because they refuse to Stop doing the work of God. They refuse to deny the name of Jesus. All you need to do is bow down and and deny Jesus. All you need to do is bow down and say, I believe in Allah and Muhammad is prophet and you can live. And they say, no, it's still daytime. We must do the work of the one who sent Jesus, that work of reconciling sinners to himself. No human authority, none, has priority over what God clearly commands in Scripture. That includes government, that includes religious authority, that includes parents, that includes educational authority. We obey God. We do the work of God while it is day because the night comes when we can't work 
And when that night comes, we stand before God and we give an account of the stewardship that he gave to us of the gospel. As I said at the beginning, this is one of those uh, miraculous displays of power where the response is faith and worship. Matter of fact, there's two responses in our text, and this is always true about Jesus, that he evokes a response of either worship or rejection. There is never any middle ground with Jesus Christ. You either worship him or you deny that he is Lord of your life. And so a second time in verse 24, they summon him and they question him and they interrogate him. And, uh, and you see in the whole narrative that there's this, this progress of a growing faith that's taking place. Earlier in verse 11, it was the man they called Jesus that he spoke of. Later, he says in verse 17, he's a prophet. In verse 33, he says, this man is from God. In verse 35, he comes to realize he's the son of man. He is that, that, that messianic figure in Daniel that is terrifying in some sense. He's the son of man. And then in verse 38, he believes in Jesus and worships him. And that's often the way evangelism takes place. It's a progress of understanding and, and growing in a, uh, a faith that Jesus is the Messiah. But we not only see that progress of faith, we see that progress of a growing resistance. In verses 13 through 17, they interrogate the blind man. In 18 through 23, they interrogate his parents. In 24 through 34, they interrogate the blind man again. And at the end, they, they hear enough evidence that this really happened. And at the end, they resist whatever this, mind, this sign might mean. They resist Jesus Christ. And in this mysterious way that only God will explain to us someday, this is how the gospel works. It's like light shines on this blind man and he confesses that Jesus must be from God. Light shines on the Pharisees and they harden their hearts. It's like the same heat, the same heat of the gospel that hardens clay is the heat that melts wax. What is it that turns that hardened clay of the human heart into wax? It's a work of the Spirit of God that makes it possible for us to have the seed of God's Word sown in our heart. The same light that enables some to see is a light that blinds others. Jesus says, I've come into the world for judgment so that the blind will see and those who see 
will become blind. That is, if you're blind and you recognize your blindness, you have the possibility of seeing by the grace of God. But if you think you see, you will live in blindness and die in blindness and live in eternal darkness. And of course, this is where John is bringing us in every one of these signs. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. He wants you to confess, to repent, to bow down, to worship as this blind man. Yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's only two options. Either with the blind man you believe and you worship, or with the Pharisees you resist and die in your sin. What a tragedy. Come to Christ. Oh, I love the day that Sal came out of that dark room. There was a door there all the time. There was a way out. There is always, with God, a way out of that darkness you're in. But you must believe the gospel. Believe Christ. And the eyes are opened. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that while we were enemies, sinners, unworthy, without strength, you loved us, you pursued us, and by your goodness, you brought us to repentance. You showed us the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. You showed us the sufficiency of his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection to give us new life, eternal life. I pray for anyone sitting here this morning or anyone who is watching some other place in the world, if they do not know you, Father, that your spirit would do a powerful work in their hearts right now and enable them to be able to see your goodness so that they can repent and see the sufficiency of the work of Christ so that they can believe in Jesus and come out of darkness. And wherever you are this morning, if you want to come out of darkness, then come to Christ right now simply wherever you are by praying a simple prayer like this. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm helpless. I cannot save myself, but I believe you can save me because Christ died my death and he lives to give me new life. Today, I repent of my sin. 
I surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. Save me for Jesus' sake. Father, help many to confess Christ as Lord today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.